love. I know you brought your Bible with you today. Please find it, open it uh, to the book of Acts, chapter 6. Familiar passage of Scripture, and as you well know, when we come to the book of Acts, we know that we're looking at the history book of the New Testament, and the author, Luke, records some great historical happenings, and he tells us about the time of Jesus' ascension. He tells us in chapter 2 about the birth of the New Testament church at Pentecost, and then how the church begins to fulfill the Great Commission, as we have an outline in the book in chapter 1, how we're to go and be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And when you arrive at chapter 6, you discover the church now has been in existence for about five years, and there have been days of explosive growth. Chapter 1, we see there's about 120 believers. In chapter 2, at Pentecost, about 3,000 are saved. You come to chapter 4, and we read that there are about 5,000 men. And when you arrive at chapter 6, you'll see that the disciples were multiplying. So we've gone to the church uh, for the Lord, adding to the church. Now the church is being multiplied, Luke writes. Commentators speculate that there may be as many as 20,000 men in the local church within those first five years. So the church is rapidly changing, and become, it's becoming more evident that with the enormity of the church, how the apostles would address these challenges. And you know, I think the church is always pressed against that. How are we going to handle the challenges that lie ahead? And oftentimes, a church will simply do nothing. That's always the easiest out, isn't it? Just to simply do nothing and hope things get better. But can I tell you, oftentimes in the church, it's not good enough to do nothing. Most time, we're going to have to, to be proactive and get engaged because things are not stagnant. Things are ever-changing, and we've got to deal with these things rightfully and productively. I don't need to inform you here at Hoffmantown. You have stared some problems in the face over these past months. Church leadership have been seeking to find a right resolve of all of these matters. And as so often is the case, some aren't happy with how things have happened and not happy with the resolve. But here's what I know. While you and I may or may not have been a part of the problem, guess what? We can all be a part of the solution. And the first thing that I know is this, we're going to have to move forward. We can't fix anything in the past. What did Jesus say in Luke chapter 9? Any man who puts his hand to the plow and keeps looking back is not fit for the kingdom of God. I remember Adrian Rogers one time said, we don't need to look back because truth of the matter is you can't unscramble eggs. And that's the way it is. We've got to move forward. But I'm here for the primary reason that while the church finds themselves at this intersection I've come and, uh, with my wonderful wife, Mary, for this primary reason that God called us here. I, I can assure you, I'm not here because I was looking for a place to preach. There's a lot of places to preach between here and Kansas City. <laughs> but we came with a mission, and that mission is simply to help this church to become what God wants it to be, to be a better place, to get in a better place, restoring and reviving this church to be the place that it needs to be healthy, holy, and yes, even a happy place to be. Where we get focused on what really matters, the main thing, and keeping the main thing the main thing. 
And this will not be accomplished by a change in governance. It won't happen even if we get a windfall of money and we're about to get that. It won't happen if we have a few more meetings. I'm just saying it can happen today. If you with me will draw a line in the sand and simply say we're moving forward in faith, in love, in humility, and reverence for our God. We see here in chapter 6, this is the first documented problem in the church. Can I tell you, every church that's ever existed had problems to deal with. There's always challenges. There's always uphill climbs. There's always dilemmas. There's always detours. There's always difficulties. And there's always disagreements. And quite honestly, if these matters aren't handled and addressed in a right and godly way, it can eventually be the death knell of any church. However... If problems are addressed with grace, kindness, redemptively, and unselfishly, God can use those pain and those problems to catapult the church forward. So the question always becomes for all of us, will this problem lead us to more problems? Or will it draw us together and the problems become found in the purpose of God as we seek to move on? God, help us to be people who are peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Let's be solution finders. Let's be grace givers. Even a church that continues in a peaceful and healthy environment must deal with issues in the church productively and lovingly, not reactionary and certainly not retaliatory. So today I'm preaching a message on how problems in the church can result in something positive. Would you stand in honor of reading God's Word today? I know you're familiar with this text of Scripture. Uh, We believe these men, these seven who were elected, were actually deacons, although it's not uh, said that in the text. But I want to unpack the truths and address it from the perspective that I just introduced. So you follow along as I read. Now in those days, when the number of disciples were multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we, uh, whom we may appoint over, over this business But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. Boy, isn't that a sweet day? And the the resolve and the saying pleased everybody. And they chose Stephen, the man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorius, Nicanor, Timian, uh, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Is verse 7 not up there? Let me read it to you. Then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. See, this story ends well. I didn't want to quit there on verse 6. It's got a good ending. That's where we're going today. Bow your heads with me. Let's pray. 
Father, we are grateful today that you've loved us with an everlasting love, and you prayed for us before you would go to the cross in that high intercessory prayer in John 17 about make them one even as we are one, O Lord, that the world may see that you have sent me. And so, Lord, I pray today that we would look at things in a together way and see things as we can personally be and do and all that's expected of us. So, Lord, help us. Forgive us of our sins. Give us ears to hear, hearts uh, to understand, and a willingness to obey. I pray this in faith, in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. You can see in your outline there, in the compass, follow along with me if you'd like to. I want to begin by talking about the problem that existed in verse 1. Actually, the last verse of chapter 5 unveils the genesis of this exponential growth that's going on in the local church because it says daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And I'm telling you, church, when we're going about our business and we're telling others about Jesus and proclaiming the truth of what Christ has done in our life, guess what? Things indeed in the whole perplexion of our life and in the life of the church will be different. So the gospel is being proclaimed. Hundreds are coming to faith. And while obviously there's reason to rejoice, a couple of problems were addressed here in the text that ensued quickly. The first, let me say under A, was a growth problem. A growth problem. What a good problem to have. More people coming to faith in Christ. More people showing up at church. More people being brought by other people, more people in the youth group. The children's department is uh, all of a sudden is overcrowded. We can't get enough workers. No doubt, it's the, it's the problem I, I suppose that every church yearns to have, where God is blessing to the, to the degree that, 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 that so many folks are being reached, that the church is growing. It's a good problem to have. I've told you my story 26 years at Lenexa Baptist Church, and and, and struggled to get the church surviving. But the last 20 years, we had a significant growth. We grew from a struggling church of running 75 people to, to, to when we concluded uh, running 3,500 or so when I retired. But here's what I know. I learned about growth problems and their challenges. We relocated the church. We went to multiple services. We built four buildings. We were shuttling people from seven off-campuses uh, parking lots. We were always setting up additional chairs. We were always having to enlist and train more people. We were hiring more staff and laboring to reach one more, one more person, one more people, one more person with the gospel. If I have a heart desire for the revitalization of this wonderful church, it's this. That we could see God begin to bless this church. That we start moving forward in faith, growing, reaching people, adding to the church weekly. Those who would be saved. Reaching people that are in close proximity to us. And, and then going out through a whole city and, and spreading gospel seeds. That, that people might come and worship with us here at this church. So when I came, I, I came with some goals. I'm a goal setter. I always have been. I wanted to accomplish some things here. One, I wanted to build unity and sweeten the fellowship of God's people. As I told you early on, I love the local church, and I've come to love this church. You know what I love about this church? 
It's the people I get to preach to every Sunday. There's, there's a lot of wonderful people here, and I'm meeting more of them each and every week. But I also wanted to move the church forward in faith. I wanted to be seen as leading the way and trusting God for more. I wanted to work to enhance a sweet spirit in this church, to tear down whatever barriers there were and build bridges into relationship. And then once my time is through here, that you, could, you can look back or we can look back together and see God had blessed. The church was unified and even growth began to happen. So I'm telling you, we're, we're working towards that goal. We need your help to accomplish it. There was a growth problem. But second, listen to this, there was a griping problem. Wasn't it? That's what it says. A complaint arose against the Hellenists who were these widows who were Greek-speaking. And they felt like they were being slighted in the daily distribution of food because the Hebraic widows were getting more than the Hellenistic widows. Listen, you can't read this text without first noticing this, and that is the poverty of the early church. These people were destitute, and God's people were taking care of their fundamental needs. And like manna from heaven to those in need, the, 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 we, we learn that the church is taking care of these folks. And even in those best efforts, a complaint arose against these Greek, uh, about uh, these Greek-speaking widows that they were being overlooked. And the King James Bible says, and a murmuring occurred. The newer translation says, and they began to complain. But regardless of the, the verb you interpret there, they felt like they were being slighted. And they weren't happy about it. And usually when people aren't happy, what do they do? They begin to complain. You know, as I thought about that in preparation, this is probably the first complaint registered against the church. <laughs> and, I, and it seems to be here that there was a complaint. You know, I thought about my own experience in pastoring three churches and serving the Lord over the years. Man, I have heard complaints about everything. Can I tell you? You can, you can only imagine. I've heard people complain because others were complaining. You know what I mean? So that, that's the way it works. But I'll tell you, probably as much as anything, you know what people complain about? The temperature is never right in the sanctuary. And so our body temperature dictates how we feel like the temperature ought to be there. You know, it's, some people say it's too cold. Some people say it's too hot. We have the same problem in my house, don't we, Mary? It's, yeah. She, she needs it colder than I need it, I'll just tell you. But there's things that people complain about. And are they valid? It really doesn't matter that much. People get their classroom moved. Thermostat's not right. And I just want to say this collectively because we're talking about complaining. I really, I only got two words for those who like to complain. Stop it. <laughs> really. I, see, what, see, <laughs> see what a great counselor I am? Don't do that anymore. And, of course, I have a proof text. I wouldn't say it otherwise. And that is Philippians 2.14 that says, Do everything. That's inclusive. Without arguing or, here's the word, complaining. So what does God's word have to say to us who seek to follow him? Zip it. Don't, don't do it. The temptation will always be there. And so these noteworthy things about these seven elected, they became the solution to the problem. And that's where I'm going today. Seems to be the first deacons. So the first deacons weren't a problem. They came as a solution to the problem. 
here's what I know. When there's problems in the church, I don't care if it's the deacons or the leadership or anybody in the pew, they usually, people show up either if there's a fire going on, they've either got a bucket of water or they've got a bucket of gasoline. You know, some, some people are there to quiet it while others just look for another fight. If we handle these things in the right way, here's the lesson for today. We can move forward with a God-honoring plan, and the Lord can be glorified. Let me move quickly. There was a problem that existed, a growth problem and a griping problem. Now let's look at the people who were elected because verse 5 says, There were seven capable men who were chosen to, to take care of these needs and the priorities of the church. And back up to verse 4, there, there seemed to be a priority that they established here because they said, we want, uh, the apostle said, well, here's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to be those who spend their time preparing to preach and also in prayer. But we need someone on the ground, boots on the ground, to do some heavy lifting, to appease the widows, to wait on tables, to see that no one is overlooked in this distribution of food. So here's the deal. Up to now, it seems the apostles were doing everything. Reminded me of this, this story, I, I, think it's in, I think it's in Exodus 18, where Moses is doing everything with, with the Israelites, and his father-in-law Jethro says, hey, can we, have a, can, can we have a conversation here? Look, you are wearing yourself out. And he told him, said, look, get you some men of 50 that are capable and, and let them handle some of these things uh, themselves and you can take the bigger cases but but you're going to have to to delegate some of this so Moses adopted the art of delegation and he selected as you would expect able men to assist him thus we see here that the priority of the apostles would be what you would want it to be and that was they were going to study to be ready to preach the word of God. They were going to stand in the gap to be intercessors for the needs of the people. The apostles were the sent out ones from Jesus. And you remember as they elected Matthias as a replacement for Judas in Acts chapter 1. They had to have been involved in the ministry of, of, of Jesus and had an experience with the resurrected Christ. And so they, being sent out of God, they are the leaders in the church, and they're the ones who were to preach and proclaim the truths of the Word of God, but they still needed some assistance, didn't they? But they had the priorities right. The priority here is, is right. We believe in the proclamation of the Word. We believe in the truth of opening the Word of God to the people of God. But we also see that there are layers of needs that have to be met in, in, in a church as large as this one. We want a man in the coming days that is grounded in the truths of the Word of God, that believe in the inerrancy of the Scriptures. He's not going to come up here with some topical message and, and seven ways to get along with your mother-in-law but are going to spend a little time and dig deep in the Word of God that the people of God may be built up for every good work. So they established a priority. Now let's look quickly at the seven that they selected because we learned something about them as well. There was Stephen, my namesake, Philip, Prochorius, Nicanor, Timian, Parmenius. I'm glad my mom didn't choose Parmenius for me to be named. And Nicholas. These men were certainly 
fitting for the office they would, uh, that we believe they would serve, and that is the office of the New Testament deacon. Just to remind you, that word diakonos is, is actually translated oftentimes minister or ministry 20 times in the New Testament, and it's translated servant seven times, but only three times do we see the noun form used in application of a deacon. But these men were serving, waiting on tables. So the office, here's what I want you to get take away with you. It wasn't a position, it was a function. These deacons were to be concerned about the mission and message of the, uh, the church, of course. But they were simply called to roll up their sleeves and serve in the mundane, the, men, the menial needs of the day. They weren't church police. They weren't getting in the way of the apostles, telling them they got a better idea. Matter of fact, verse 3 says, here's who they were. They were men of good reputation. These were honest men. They were, they were trustworthy men. They were full of the Holy Spirit. So they ought to be full of the Holy Spirit for crying out loud. They're going to serve the church. Can I tell you, that extends to all of us in this room. We need to be full of the Holy Spirit. Not just the elders, not just the deacons, not just the key leaders. This is for all of us. Be filled with the Spirit. I don't know about you, but I want the ushers to be filled with the Spirit. I want the nursery workers to be filled with the Spirit. Certainly, I want my Sunday school teacher to be filled with the Spirit. But I'm telling you, I've got no room to talk if I'm not be being filled with the Spirit of God. And I'm telling you, if we're going to be moving forward, we better move forward in the Spirit and not the flesh. And so these men were full of the Holy Spirit of God, men of good reputation. And then it says they were men as well, men of wisdom. So they were good, they were godly, and they were gifted men, and they were setting example for the tens of thousands of deacons that would follow them. Actually, only two of these men we know anything about. You, you saw their names. Stephen, who would be the first church martyr, in chapter 7 of, of, of Acts. And then we know of Philip, the evangelist. Remember, he took the gospel to, uh, to Samaria. He had this encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch. He leads him to faith in Christ. He baptizes him there. He goes on to Caesarea and on and on and on. He was a great soul winner. Let me just have a sidebar here with the deacons. I love the deacon ministry. I do. I was ordained as a deacon at 30 years old. Honored to be serving my local church as a deacon. I thought, for crying out loud, is this the best they can get? Asking me to be one of the deacons. <laughs> I'm just being honest with you. But I was so honored. I was so humbled that I'd be asked to serve in any kind of capacity as a leader in the church. But I understood what was expected of me. And that was to be a servant. And that would be good enough because that's what God expects of all of us. Jesus said, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you've got to be a servant of all. Four notable things I noticed about the seven. One, they worked as a team. They weren't lone rangers. They weren't prima donnas. They were servants working together for a common cause. They were trusted people. They had good reputation. Their character preceded them. Their character was their calling card. They were competent men. They were full of wisdom. They weren't novices or, uh, or ill-informed, but full of godly wisdom. And they were responsible people. They accomplished the task that they had been asked to do. 
They were resolving this problem. Now let's look at how this thing turned out. Not only the problems that existed, the people that were elected. The priorities had been established, but finally, we see the progress that they experienced. In verse 7, that I read to you, the word of God was spread. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and many of the priests even became obedient to the faith. So Luke says, now here's what happened in the way they handled this issue, the challenges, the problems in a right and God-directed way. The priorities were put in place. The apostles would now direct their attention, their energy and effort to preaching and praying. And the second problem was rightfully resolved. They took people. They delegated the responsibility to them. And these men were godly men who accomplished the task. They changed the complaints to a calming resolve. The, the, The murmuring soon ceased. And now we get the results, okay? Which was this. God's word began to spread. And people were being saved. Number of disciples were becoming obedient, and the church grew exponentially. So first, under A, there was spiritual growth that transpired. There was spiritual growth. That's what it's saying. What happened? People were being saved. The disciples continued to grow. And then he says, even those, the, the, the priests of Judaism, these descendants of Aaron, the Levites... They heard the message of Jesus, and yes, they were being converted. There was spiritual growth going on because this was rightly resolved. But it didn't quit there. He says there was a numerical growth as well. There's progress. The church continues to grow. Yes, there's spiritual maturity, but it, in, in, and also ensuing was this, the, the, these, this growth that happened. Not surprising. The apostles were doing their job. They were preaching. They were praying. The, the, the deacons were doing their job. They're waiting on tables. They're taking care of these, of these secondary issues. The Spirit of God is at work. And what happens when the Spirit of God is at work? People begin to get saved. Spiritual growth occurs. Can I tell you, we're working to get to a really healthy place in this church where we can resolve problems, where we can indeed Handle them in a right and godly and good way. But the only thing we can do is do what's expected of us. And that is pursue with all of our energy and might preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel message. It really is the answer to all of our issues. We, we just keep on walking with God and keep on telling the truth of the gospel, developing believers to be servants of Christ. And I'm confident the blessings of God will soon follow. Would you pray with me? Father, help us to be men and women who work together, heart, mind, and spirit to accomplish your will in the church. And Lord, I know these have been difficult days, and I, I know people's perspectives are different on what should have been done and wasn't done. But Lord, help us to move on. Our only hope is continuing lifting up Jesus. I want to do that today. I want to thank you that He changed my life, transformed me. And I know each one that is here who's a believer in Christ have a narrative, a story of their life, how you stepped into their heart and life and transformed them. Help us not to get back in the flesh now. 
Help us not to be selfish people. Help us to be unselfish. Help us to be people who say continually yes to your will and your way. And so I pray that for all of us here today. And I pray now as we make an appeal, have an invitation time, that if we could pray with some who are in need, if there's any here that know you're not in the free pardon of sin, maybe today they'd like to give their heart to you. There'd be nothing more wonderful than to see someone trust Christ today. I pray they would come. And even as we move toward taking communion together at the conclusion of the service, I pray, oh Lord, our hearts would be right with you. So now as we extend our time to making this appeal, oh Holy Spirit of God, convicts in righteousness and judgment. For the sake of our Savior, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. This will be your opportunity. We're going to just give a brief invitation and then move to the communion time. But if you'd like to make a decision public or you'd like to pray with someone, we'll be right here. You come. It'll be my joy to get to pray with you or one of the staff as well. Or if you'd like to just come and pray, that would be your prerogative as well. While we sing, David, you lead us. God will make a way. What a wonderful invitation, Him. Let's sing it from our hearts. Today, let's trust the Lord. If you'd like to make a decision, you come. While we sing, God calls. Come right now. God will make a With love.